Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The writer's strike is in its fourth week and there's no telling how long it will go on. Production on most TV and film projects are halted. The late night talk shows have gone dark and it affects our favorite native productions on television and the big screen. The writer's union is flexing its muscle over a number of issues including what they say is fair compensation for works distributed on various digital media. We'll hear from native professionals today about what's at stake and get insights into the screenwriter's life. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A push to establish a new national monument near the Grand Canyon gained steam recently with the visit of U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, for years, tribes and environmentalists have advocated for added protections in the area. Holland met with leaders of the Havasupai, Hopi, Wallapai, and other members of the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition. They're urging President Joe Biden to declare the Bajnoavjo Itakukvini Grand Canyon National Monument. The meeting highlighted the tribe's connections to the area and their efforts to protect more than a million acres adjacent to the park from future uranium and other hard rock mining. Carletta Toulouse is a former former Havasupai council member and a spokesperson for the coalition. This attempt to declare the Grand Canyon a national monument is very historical because all the tribes once again have come together to unite in one voice and one mission. Tribes and conservation groups say uranium mining threatens the Grand Canyon's environment as well as many sacred sites and tribal water resources. The mining industry, however, maintains that modern extraction methods are safe. A 20-year federal moratorium halted new claims in 2012, but a monument designation would make the mining ban permanent. Previous attempts have failed in Congress since 2008, but the current push is being driven by tribes and is aimed at a presidential proclamation through the Antiquities Act. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. After a recent two-day trial, a Ketchikan Superior Court judge ruled that a list of 14 traditional tribal values can keep its place in Ketchikan schools in Alaska. KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. The values were created years ago by Southeast Alaska Native leaders and include items like hold each other up and speak with care. But parents Justin Brees and Rebecca King sued the school district, alleging that one of the values, reverence for our creator, was a religious statement that violated the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. They asked for the posters to be taken down from common areas and removed from a behavior reward system at Ketchikan Charter School. They wanted the values incorporated into lessons instead. King testified during the first day of the trial. I interpret it as the promotion of creationism, whether that be by Raven or God or another supernatural entity outside of ourselves or science. See Alaska Heritage Institute's president, Rosita Wuerl, testified as an expert witness on behalf of the district. In our culture, reverence for, you know, our creator, you know, doesn't refer to any God or any deity that we worship. That's absolutely not, you know, within our culture. Uh, within our culture, uh, creator could refer to multiple beings. 
In the written decision, Judge Catherine Librand said that the plaintiffs didn't prove the statement was religious. And, Librand ruled, even if it was religious, it still wouldn't be a violation of the clause because the display of the posters isn't forcing a certain behavior. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Tribal leaders, school officials, advocates, and students are gathering at the California State Capitol in Sacramento Wednesday. They're asserting rights for Native students to wear tribal regalia at graduation ceremonies. A 2018 law authorizes the wearing of tribal regalia at graduation. According to Native American Assembly member James Ramos, beaded caps, eagle feathers, plumes, and sashes are among adornments schools are prohibiting at graduations against the law. Ramos will be leading the event. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by Vision Maker Media currently seeking two digital media specialists and a director of project productions and services. Information on required qualifications and how to apply at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The TV and film industry has changed, and the Writers Guild of America wants compensation that reflects that change. Hollywood writers are in week four of a strike, and there's no indication that the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers will submit to reauthorizing a collective bargaining agreement to provide increased pay and other demands sought by writers. Among those picketing in the streets and refusing to write new episodes of some of our favorite TV shows are native screenwriters who've increasingly brought our stories and perspectives to screens, both big and small. We'll talk with some of those writers this hour about the WGA strike, what it means for Native representation in Hollywood, and how they navigate a changing industry. You're welcome to join us. Are any of your favorite TV shows on pause because of the strike? What TV shows have exceptionally good writing? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Now speaking with us from Los Angeles, California, is Sierra Teller Ornales. She is a screenwriter and was the showrunner for Rutherford Falls. She's Danae. Sierra, welcome back to NAC. Hi, Yate. I'm Sierra Nalasian Sheh, Tabahe Nishle, Nakadna Abashishchi, Tuahaguni Bishache, Do Nakadna Adishanali. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yate is to you as well, Sierra. Speaking with us in Juneau, Alaska, is Vera Starbard. She is a writer and has worked on shows such as Alaska Daily and Molly of Denali. She is Tlingit and Denina. Vera, welcome back to you as well. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you. And from Los Angeles, California, we're joined by Jana Schmeeding. She's a writer and performer who you probably know from shows like Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls. She is Minikanju and Sikanju Lakota. Jana, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
Sierra, let's start with you. I think as viewers, we don't always think about writers such as yourself and others working behind the scenes of our favorite TV shows until there's an issue like this current strike that can bring production to a screeching halt. Can you explain what prompted you and your peers to strike for the first time in over 15 years? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been a TV writer for over 10 years. And one of the first things you learn, you know, you'll be in a writer's room with a bunch of other writers who, you know, are older and more seasoned. And, you know, you get calls from executives or producers asking for something. It's always faster. They always want it faster and cheaper. Um, and my boss, my, one of my first bosses would say, it all starts with the writer, everything. They can't build sets. They can't pick costumes. They can't cast actors until we write it. And he would say, we're going to take as long as we need to get the story right. And so one of the first lessons I learned was that all of this really begins with the writer, and especially in television. In television, the showrunner is, is the writer. In a lot of other mediums, it's the director or it's the producer who, who hold the keys. But in television, it's, it's always been the writer. And that, over the last 10 years, has really changed. Um, the streamers have sort of moved in, your Netflix, your Hulu, your, your Peacock. And they've really changed the game um, in debilitating the power of, of the writers. The, my union, the Writers Guild of America, did a survey of, um, you know, there's 12,000 of us in the union. And they said, you know, what are the problems that, that we're experiencing? And what you saw is a lot of upper-level writers who, who um, are used to making, you know, a very good living, having to do so much more work and having to, to put the whole show on their shoulders because a lot of the young writers are not being allowed to work for, for many weeks. They're, they're being put into these sort of mini rooms where their stories are sort of extracted and they're given no skills and they're given very little pay and they're not given access to health insurance and things that were just a given when I was a young writer starting out. And so what we see is this real wealth disparity where the, the streamers themselves, these companies are earning billions of dollars, they're making lots of money and they're not sharing in that wealth. And that wealth is created by the writers. And so based on that survey that the young writers and the, the more seasoned writers both had these complaints, we, we decided to vote to do a strike. And then we had a negotiating committee that met with the, the studios in good faith, asking for, for specific demands of more pay, better pay, um, and also to sort of put some rules against um, AI that's coming and, and not to be replaced by these machines. And the studios would not engage with most of our demands. They, they gave us, you know, a few little things that we're asking for, but for the most part, they would not engage with our, with our negotiation. And so we said, well, we got to do what we got to do. And it was pencils down and it's been pencils down for, for almost a month now. Almost a month. Now, Sierra, I think for many of us, there's this romanticized view of the entertainment industry that everybody makes huge amounts of money and lives this glamorous lifestyle. But what you're describing to us today, it doesn't sound like that for the typical writer. Yeah, trust me, I'm a self-deprecating writer. The last thing I want to do is be like, oh, poor me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm connected to that old school legacy of, of what you're describing. When, I, when mm -hmm. I started out, I worked on a network show. We did 22 episodes. So I worked on one show for a whole year. I made enough money to qualify for health insurance. Um, it was much cheaper to live out here in Los Angeles at the time. And, and during the summer, they would re-air my network episode, you know, you, you know, like the summer reruns, you've heard that, uh -huh. right? And right? I would get right. a check. I would get this, I would get this really good sized check to, to, because they were making money off the TV show. 
So I got to make money off the TV show, right? And everything was kind of fair. Um, now, it's sort of the same thing you saw with like the music industry, right? Where these bands used to be making all this money on CDs. And then once it switched to streaming, they were making pennies for, for each stream. And so that's sort of what happened is now it's switched over. And so talking to young writers now, I'm, so I was even shocked where I'm like, oh, well, you get your residuals. And they're like, no, my residuals, $4. <laughs> you know, I used to get hundreds, <laughs> sometimes even thousands of dollars. And that could get me through the summer. It could get you to the next job. And now it's, it's, it's pennies. So I know certain writers who've had to work on like four or five different shows. And, and they never get promoted. They never get to be on set and learn how to, how to run a show. They never learn and get the skills of producing. And so, you know, on Rutherford Falls, we, we switched up the schedule so that a lot of the writers could be on set and they could have that experience because it was really important to me because, you know, I'm, I'm a sixth-generation Navajo tapestry weaver. Like, I learned to weave from my aunties and my grandmas and my mom. And, and passing down that knowledge to my kids is what I plan to do in that art form. And it's the same thing with TV writing. You learn from the people who came before you and you teach the people who came after you. And watching that kind of, you know, be sort of suffocated by the, these streamers and these big businesses who, by the way, are making billions of dollars. Uh -huh. <laughs> they are making so much more money. I think like budgets for shows in the last four years have gone up, I think, $14 billion. But somehow writers pay have gone down. And so we are really just asking to share. We're not like saying like, oh, we're, we're the victims here. But I will say there used to be a middle class of writer that could live out here and earn a living and buy a home and have kids. And to all the young writers I'm talking to, that is just not the case anymore. And it really has changed. Yeah, oh, geez. This is just uh, really, really interesting in learning about, you know, this kind of behind the curtain perspective on, on what goes into being a writer in Hollywood. Let's go ahead and bring Jana into the conversation now. And Jana, I want to ask you for your perspectives here. And also, I mean, if somebody had told you, Jana, a year ago that you'd now be walking a picket line, would you have believed them? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think um, I, I was living in New York City and I was doing a lot of live comedy when the last time the WGA um, struck. And, uh, so I remember, I remember the last strike in 2007 and, um, how it sort of upended the entertainment industry and, um, drove a lot of writers to putting up live shows. Um, I enjoyed like, <laughs> you know, paying, uh, writers to perform live, uh, for several months. I, I think the last strike in 2007 lasted a hundred, a hundred days. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think just by nature of the pandemic and also being um, on two shows that are on streamers um, and especially being a writer on a show that was on Peacock and uh, a streamer, this is sort of the only existence that I know. This this unjust system is is the only system that I that I know. And I have learned through working with Sierra and other writers who have gone through um, the old system that, um, you know, it, it like helps validate my sort of existential anxiety about my career. You know, I'm, I'm like, oh, no wonder I'm like <laughs> struggling to see a future in this. Um, I, I, I have, I'm having difficulty financially staying afloat. And, um, and I say that as a person who got to write on the first Native sitcom and a person who starred in that sitcom, um, that that I cannot um, afford to um, to buy 
a home in, in the city that I live in. I contribute to the local economy. Um, I'm an active member of the community um, in Los Angeles and, um, you know, and in the industry that this city is, you know, based around. And I'm really proud of the work that I've gotten to do. And it just doesn't seem fair that I, that I have to uh, scrape to get by. Um, simply by the nature of um, being staffed and employed on a streaming network. Um, So yeah, Uh it's just, the, the, the math ain't mathin and (laughs) I'm, I'm proud and honored to strike alongside my colleagues. And, um, and I believe that SAG is uh, in the process of authorizing a strike vote as well. And, And that's another union that I'm a part of and I'll be proud to, um, you know, help um, use that leverage in this fight as well. Okay. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I know that directors and actors and the unions that represent them, they also factor into this calculus. So we can talk about that after this next break and and their role with regard to this dispute. And before we do that, though, uh, anybody with a question or a comment, or if you would like to give a shout out to one of our guests today, if you're a fan of any of these television shows that these guests uh, are involved with or have been involved with, give us a holler. You know the number, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that's 1-800-996-2848. The focus of our show today is this strike, ongoing strike. been about a month now, the Writers Guild of America. It's the first time they've had a strike in about 15 years, and that last strike lasted about 100 days. So we are uh, in the early innings here, perhaps, of, of another long dispute between two parties here with this whole collective bargaining agreement. So again, give us a call. Let us know your thoughts. If you're a fan of television and streaming, what are you thinking about right now? Are you concerned about these shows? Are you concerned about the Native talent that's involved with these shows? 1-800-99-NATIVE, the number to call. A 77-year-old Cherokee citizen is getting ready to take a thousand-mile trek on his bike. He's among a determined handful of amateur native athletes who take on ambitious physical feats. We'll find out what drives people to set long-distance goals on the next Native America Calling. Yate. You look after everyone else. Look after yourself too. Check out these healthcare resources for Native women at all stages of life. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash women's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Ahiaha. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What are some of your favorite shows to watch? Are those writers on strike? We're talking with Native folks about making it in Hollywood as screenwriters. And you can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. What about unions? Are you a member of one? If so, tell us what you like or don't like about your collective bargaining agreement. 1-800-99-NATIVE. That's the number to call. On the line right now in Los Angeles, California, is Jana Schmieding. Jana, you are both a writer and you're an actor, so I feel like you've kind of got two feet, two dogs in this fight, more or less. And I want to ask you, what is the impact there with regard to writers and directors, and and how can they factor into this dispute 
that's currently being waged by, by the writers in the industry? Um, yeah, the the other unions are directly affected by this as well. You know, the same the same system that is sort of um, uh, causing this huge um, power and wealth disparity between the um, the CEOs and executives at the top of these big corporations and the workers, the people who are actually working um, on on these uh, shows and and these films. Um, is, is happening across the board. You know, it's not just uh, about writers. You know, actors are struggling under the same system. We are having, um, you know, issues with residuals um, when it comes to using our, you know, using our on-screen talent um, and not paying us for that. Um, we are confronting um, a new wave of um, AI that is making it possible uh, to potentially, I, I don't, I don't want to say um, replace performers, but certainly, you know, we have the power to. Um, uh, even right now, um, I've been seeing discussion within the voiceover community that you know AI could replace voiceover um, work, and that's really terrifying. You know, um, it's it's terrifying as an, a person, as a worker, um, and. It's also terrifying as an artist um, because, you know, it, it's really an it's an existential crisis to our art, to our craft. Um, right. That that uh, these corporations are, you know, one of the talking points or one of the negotiating points um, was from the WGA and will be from SAG is to put restrictions on AI and the use of AI in in writing and editing, um, and the the response from the AMPTP was um, it was nothing. They had no response. They they refused to negotiate on that topic. They said we're willing to have a meeting with you about new technology every year. I you saw know, that. Their, yeah. their, their response was a, <laughs> right. a yearly meeting about here's what the new AI is. Um, so it really is terrifying. To, you know they have it, they have the power to wield that. It is terrifying, Jana, and I know you even you posted a, a video uh, recently, and you explained, you know, why you felt that way. But at the same time, I feel it's terrifying for all of us with regard to the AI because so many jobs and so many industries are at risk of disruption. I mean, I'm I'm just waiting for for the folks up in Alaska to hire an AI chatbot chatbot to do my job and then host Native America calling. So <laughs> I feel like we're all at risk with that regard. But um, you know, another issue here at the heart of this dispute, I think, is this feeling that's shared by by many of your peers that the industry is strategically devaluing the profession of writing. And how does that make you feel as an artist, Jana? It's infuriating. It's infuriating. I love being a writer, um, and I I think we all love it. Um, it's already challenging enough to be a a, a professional writer. It, you know, we have the cards stacked against us, especially as indigenous writers. And, you know, having any kind of storytelling leverage in this industry has it has been a climb. Um, it feels Sisyphean at times. And I, I really, I believe in our, um, I believe in our storytelling ability. And I believe that we have so much more to say. And the way that um, our art has always been devalued. Um, this is sort of reminiscent of that, you know, and it, it, to me, 
um, you know, it, um, it, it, it doesn't, I'm not ignoring the fact that, you know, this is happening sort of on the heels of um, a big movement in Hollywood to include more uh, non-white voices in the writer's room. Um, it, it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, we're having this issue around value and, and our art and mm-hmm. um, there are moves to be made to devalue it. Um, this is something that we as indigenous people, as native people, we understand this system very well. Um, so yeah, we have to fight it and we have to stand up for our art. We have to stand up for our craft um, and we have to do it together. We have to be unified about this. And that's the only way to really, um, to have any power. It's just like any, any lab- labor movement, you know, we are um, part of a legacy in this nation of, of um, collective bargaining. And if we use our unified um, power to um, stop the industry in its tracks, they, they have nothing. Um, they have to listen to us. Right, right. Well, the timing, it seems, is, is, is really bad right now, because as you mentioned, as a Native writer and an actor, you folks are getting so, have built so much momentum in the last few years. And for now to just come along and just kind of stall that is definitely, definitely something to to consider. And I want to go ahead and bring Vera into the conversation now. Again, she's a writer and she's worked on shows like Alaska Daily and Molly of Denali. And Vera, thank you again for joining us. And, and I want to ask you as well, how is this strike impacting you personally? Are you losing work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly in a little bit more of a privileged position than a lot of TV writer friends because I'm a playwright. I edit a magazine. Um, some of the TV writing I'm in is children's animation, which isn't covered by the union. So I have all of these different things, but my main income just went away. <laughs> you know, like my, my um, sort of what I had planned for the summer, what I planned for the fall that immediately went away. Um, but at the same time, like 98% of my peers, we all we all voted for this. Like we'd rather lose this short term income than have it affect us much much worse in the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, Vera Sierra mentioned this earlier, and it and I've noticed this for a long time. But nowadays, it's I, I just it, there's so few episodes that go into a season of a show. And when I was a kid, I remember shows would start like in the fall around the same time we went back to school and they would run like right up until summer, May or June. And now it's like 10 episodes and they're done. And and as somebody who's worked on a lot of TV shows, how does that impact writers? Well, Alaska daily was 11 episodes, you know, for, for a network primetime season (laughs) was, Mm. was 11 episodes, which is very unusual. But not getting it, it, it's not unusual anymore. Like it's it's getting more unusual. Um, my life actually was, was incredibly affected because um, I wrote episode eleven, and I was sort of always planning on, or that was the plan, as I was going to write episode eleven. And when um, and there was originally thirteen episodes. Uh, somewhat famously, like Taylor Swift got pregnant with twins during the season, so we had to cut two or three episodes. So it was 10 episodes, 11 episodes, 10 episodes left. notes. I didn't know if I was writing uh, my episode for several weeks while they decided. Um, and that's sort of the precariousness of 
the industry right now for writers, for actors, for, for everyone. But with these shorter seasons, uh, sometimes the right, there's literally not enough episodes in a season for all the writers to write one episode, much less multiple episodes as you would, you know, in a 24 episode season. So you're contracted for sometimes 10 weeks to write. That's, that's, and, and you're, usually contracted to stay with that show no matter what so you might be um kind of you get 10 weeks of work this year guaranteed and then you need to sort of ask permission to be able to do more um it's a strange industry it's it's an unusual job so you get used to sort of having multiple jobs at once i as sierra was saying like i've heard described how it used to be where it was sort of a steady job um that hasn't been my experience usually you know i need to have quite a few jobs uh, going at the same time to be able to make a living out of it. It very much does sound like gig work, the way you folks describe it. And uh, yeah, a lot of challenges for sure. And now Vera, I, I do want to be fair. The industry has argued that right now it's just a really uncertain time for television and movies with the rise of streaming. You've got these lingering effects from the pandemic. Other factors are all weighing on studios and it's, it's no secret that they've been cutting costs for a while now for some time. So they say it's wrong right now uh, to push for more paid. Do they at all have a valid argument? Or uh, <laughs> they are making record profits right now. <laughs> like there's okay. there's sort of the reality, and then there's the PR reality. Um, there's the pandemic brought huge, huge viewership. Um, that's that's what everyone was doing. You know, like they're watching Netflix, they're uh, watching all these sort of streamers come up, um, and it's it comes across just, across just really disingenuous when, you know, the ones making the argument are the ones making 200, 300 million a year. Just one of their salaries would more than cover what the writers are asking for, which is 2% of profits. <laughs> We're literally asking for 2% of profits, um, which they're making plenty of. So some of that is just um, kind of trying to get the public on their side. They're, they're cutting people right and left. Um, and increasing their profit more. Like it's, it's not a, we're in a dire situation here. It's, we're trying to get more profit and keep it versus spread it around to writers and actors and camera operators. We did reach out to the Association of Motion Picture and Television Professionals. They didn't want to come on the show today and argue their position on live radio. They did, however, provide us with a statement and we'll have this on our website. But one of their arguments they make says this needs to be put into context. They say, quote, in the most recent contract of 2020, the WGA, Writers Guild of America, negotiated a 46% increase in residuals for streaming programs to take effect starting in 2022. In many cases, writers have only recently begun to see the increases in their paychecks. Under the current formula for a one-hour series produced for Netflix or Amazon Prime, a writer receives $72,000 in residuals for one episode over three years. And I want to go back to Sierra and, and have her comment on this. Sierra, does that math sound right to you, what the, what the industry is claiming here? Absolutely not. I mean, you have to understand that this is an industry that claims that the movie Titanic never turned a profit, right? <laughs> They're like very good at hiding money. It's in sunk in more ways actually, than one, huh? Yes. Somehow Forrest Gump never made any money. Somehow all these things. So so I, I don't really like trust the wolf when they're talking about, you know, their own math, but like, 
I think to me, that's why you're seeing so many shows getting taken off platforms. You know, Disney Plus just took off. I mean, I think there was a show called Willow that has only been on for six months and they're, they're stripping it from the platform and using it as a tax write-off. And so that means no one's ever going to be able to see those shows again. Some of them are getting sold on other platforms and kind of being moved around. But a lot of the reason why um, these shows are getting taken off these streamers indefinitely is because they don't want to pay the residuals. It's because they don't want to pay people out. So they're saying, we're making a contract with you, but we're also not going to air your stuff anymore. And it's really scary to think of something like, you know, I think it, it more impacts content creators of color because we have so fewer opportunities. Think of the worst, dumbest TV show of the 1980s. There's probably 200 episodes of those shows, right? Mm-hmm. The way streamers make money is by making top three seasons of a television show. So there are 18 episodes of Rutherford Falls. There were 18 opportunities for Janet to get to play Regan. There were 18 opportunities for us to, to figure out those characters and, and see what we want to do. And, and so we are sort of getting our legs cut out before we even have a chance to find our groove. Whereas 10 years ago, you had so many opportunities to, to tell so many stories. And as we know, we have so many stories to tell. I think the other thing that you have to keep in mind is it also impacts the audience. How many audiences, people out there listening, have been like, well, I'm not going to watch that show because I want to see if it comes back. I'm not going to get invested because, because I know it's just going to get canceled, right? So I also right. think it's, it's creating a, a lack of a relationship with our audience. The last thing I just want to say real quick is also, you know, most of this stuff has been, the streamers want to dictate everything on an algorithm. Well, Indians don't exist on an algorithm. We don't have enough data points to point to an algorithm. And, and the thing with AI is that, AI will only take from existing pop culture, right? It's a mishmash of stuff that's already been written. Well, I don't think I need to tell people how Native people are depicted in most media, right? So, so the things that we're fighting for now, I think, are specifically impacting Native storytellers because we are just starting to get our momentum, and we don't want it to be cut short by these studios who are telling us, oh, we, we've got to figure it out. We're going to have it automated, and we don't need that. Because I also think Native storytellers have heard that before in so many other industries, right? It's like, oh, we'll take your patterns and we'll put them on some urban outfitters and we'll take this. And so I really feel like native content creators like Jana and Vera are sort of like the canary in the coal mine. Like we know what this feels like. We knew that this was going to be bad years before other people did. So you're also the technology angle here can't be understated. And Jana touched on this earlier with regard to AI. And if I'm not mistaken, the key issue with that strike back in 2007 had to do with the way that DVD sales and video on demand we're starting to replace rerun syndication as a main source of revenue for for the industry. And, and now it's the streaming, it's the AI potential, and you almost kind of have to wonder, like, what's the next shoe to drop? And and how, how much of this is driven by technology and changes in the industry with that regard? And then how much of it is just, just greed from the way you describe these record profits, billion-dollar profits coming from the industry? The studio said the same thing in 2007. The writers said, you guys are starting to put stuff on the internet. You're starting to stream it on these channels. We want a piece of the pie. And they said, oh, no, it's a new technology. It's never going to It's never gonna go into it. It's called new media. And so even now you have, you have shows that have been nominated for Emmys that are on these streaming sites that, that have been made for much less money and who, like, people have gotten paid nothing. You know, you heard about the, the kid from The Bear who got nominated, I think, for – some award and he had to borrow money to, to pay for a tuxedo to attend <laughs> the actual 
award service because a lot of those shows are considered new media. And so the budgets are much, much smaller and people are just being squeezed out. And what happens is a lot of these, you know, mostly, I, I, I really believe it's not a surprise that they started letting brown people make, make, make television right when they decided to stop paying everybody, right? Because what we do is we call in our friends, we call in favors, and that's us paying out of pocket in, in an emotional way, in a spiritual way, for, to make these things, because this is still our dream. It's been my dream to make a television show. It's been my, you know, as a kid, like, you dream of doing this. And, and so the studios, they take advantage, and they say, well, you should be grateful. You should be grateful that you got to make what you got to make. And it's writers like me who remember the old way and say, no, no, we used to have it way better, and this is unfair. And I will say, you know, these companies are used to busting up unions that are trying to start, but the WGA union has been around for decades, and it's a very strong union. And I think they know that, like, our strength can be used as a template for other people. I think you really hit the nail on the head there because I, I would imagine that people are just so excited to work on a television show and be in Hollywood, be in that industry. Yeah, you might be inclined to just kind of look the other way with regard to some of these issues with pay and things like that. Great conversation today. Listeners, jump in, get involved, give us a call, ask a question, share a comment. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with screenwriters about the current Writers Guild of America strike. How is the writer strike affecting the shows you like to watch? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Vera Starbard is one of our guests today. She's up in Juneau, Alaska, and she's a writer who's worked on Alaska Daily and Molly of Denali. And Vera, I understand you have a banner hanging outside your house that... Uh, in solidarity with regard to this strike. And uh, I'm interested in knowing, I mean, what are you hearing from your neighbors? Are they supportive of, of what you do in, in this issue? Um, they think it's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, being in Juneau and, you know, uh, being in Alaska, really, I think they think it's cool just literally that someone who's involved in the writer's strike lives here and works here. Like, that's actually the comment that I've gotten uh, more than anything is that they're proud to have someone representing them at all in television and film. Um, so they're extra, extra supportive of keeping that job <laughs> and, like, and making sure that we keep the door open so more Alaskans, more Alaska Native people can uh, become WGA members and work in film and television. So it's been actually really cool to see the response um, of the banners. And Vera, the projects that you that you work on, are they mostly based in Alaska or Alaska stories? Almost every one of them, yeah. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, there's, there's, a, on, there's a few of the children's animation ones that are just sort of um, fun, silly shows uh, that don't really touch on Alaska stuff. But for the most part, um, when I'm asked to write, I'm asked to write for Alaska-based and usually Alaska Native-based shows. Now, I'm hearing different uh, hypotheses. Some people are saying this strike could go well into beyond the holidays, even to the end of the year. What about you, Vera? How long do you think it's going to go? 
I definitely think it's going to be long. I see how determined the writers are, um, but unfortunately I also see how unwilling the studios are to literally even negotiate, not, not just sort of like uh, you get the sort of narrative like uh, we're being so unreasonable, but they're literally just going, no, we're not even going to talk about that. Um, to some incredibly reasonable, I think what we came in with was actually already a compromise and they're not even willing to talk about it. So uh, the more productions get shut down and certainly the bottom line is affected, but um, the nature of kind of how they were handling it before, which was they knew a strike was coming, so they front-loaded a lot of the writing. So it's going to take a little bit longer for the writing to affect them. At the same time, the actors' union, the directors' union, all of these unions that support us, um, a couple of them are coming up for negotiations as well. So once we see how they handle their negotiations and when their contracts expire, it's, I think, going to get really interesting. To, um, productions are just are just going to completely stop if um, actors and directors and, and other unions uh, also strike. And at what point, I mean, I know some of the shows, like the talk shows, they've already stopped. But at what point are, are viewers just going to sit back and say, hey, wait a minute, there's nothing left to watch on on television or streaming anymore, how long is that lag before that becomes a reality for, for everybody sitting there on their couch wanting to watch stuff? I mean, it is a bit of a lag. And actually, so I come from animation where literally I can write something and then two years or more later, I'll see what they did with it. You know, it can, it can take quite a while to get to screen. Um, so it it is a little bit uh, of a lag, but when you see, when people hear, like, so Stranger Things to shut down, that was big news. <laughs> you know, like, people don't want to wait longer for that, longer than they already do. Um, if if they shut down these big uh, productions that people are looking forward to and learning they're not even working on them, or some even might get canceled, um, I think that's, that's when people will notice. It, it, it does take a, a little while for it to actually be felt, um, but I think the shutting down of productions, that news will, will hit them a lot sooner and actually has already been hitting. Let's go to the phones. Kelly is listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on station KUNM. Kelly, hello. Hello, how are you? Doing great, Kelly. I understand you're a-, a Screen Actors Guild member. Yes, I am. Uh, I'm a New Mexico uh, SAG member. I just came off of a set that just uh, last week, they just got shut down um, Monday. Um, what um, I can add to what's been what I've already heard that's been said. Uh, I'm also a United Auto Workers. I'm a retired union auto worker out of Kansas City. So um, being part of a union, I really understand the importance of it and the importance of this strike. <clears throat> and I do agree with. Um, uh, forgot what her name what her name was that was saying um how the studios have stockpiled a lot of inventory as as the auto industry would say they stockpiled a lot of inventory to um try to hold them through the strike and i do believe this is going to be a long protracted strike for a lot of reasons i voted yesterday as a as a sag after member for the strike on our end Mm-hmm. I have a friend, uh, my girlfriend um, has a girl, that, my girlfriend has a friend that lives in Canada that was already complaining about content, how she's starting to have to start to look at reruns on her nightly um, uh, talk talk shows, I guess the, the night, the night okay. show that she watches. 
So the impact is it's starting to be felt already. I was surprised to hear that. But uh, I'm, I'm the type of person that believes that, that we're either going to have to die on our feet than live on our knees because that's what this is coming down to. And I'm also a, a person of color. I'm a, I'm a black male. I'm mm-hmm. a black man. And so um, this means a lot to me. It means a lot to uh, the people going forward, moving forward. Technology and the powers that are that are to be are really. This is going to be a big protective fight, and um, I'm down. Okay. I'm down for the cause. That's down all I can say. Um, all right, down Kelly. for the cause. Appreciate you calling in today, Kelly. Really appreciate those comments. Uh, down for the cause. And I want to go back to to Janish meeting now, and and Jana. You know, earlier we heard Vera say, you know, this could be a very prolonged dispute here. Um, are, what, what, what's what, what's going to happen in, in your life if this thing goes months, months, if it goes into the new year or something like that? Are you prepared to, to weather that long a storm? Um, I am, and um, I feel fortunate that I, I am um, able to weather the storm financially. But, um, you know, this strike has already been taxing physically. It's been taxing emotionally, mentally. You know, it it feels stressful. It feels stressful to not be working. It feels stressful to look ahead and to know that I'm not going to be, you know, especially as a writer and performer um, in both WGA and SAG, you know, um, I'm looking ahead sort of at – informally I'm able to still work as an as an actor and make money that way um but that is going to go away as well um hopefully if we're able to um you know as a as a union and I I do want to say thank you to the last caller who um who voted yes you know my hope is that as um another union the Screen Actors Guild my hope is that just by authorizing um, a strike, um, we by voting yes and authorizing a strike, um, it adds leverage to our negotiation. The AMPTP mm-hmm. will will see that we are ready to strike if necessary. And so, um, my hope is that the more unions in Hollywood that come on board with this strike and authorize a, a vote um, to strike, that uh, you know it will shorten the strike. It will make them come to the table. Sure. Um, because really, if you don't have writers, you don't have TV shows, you don't have uh, films. And if you don't have actors, you have nothing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that we have the upper hand, but we have to move collectively. Jenna, you're certainly right. Without writers, without actors, none of this happens. The show does not go live. But at the same time, you also have caterers. You have people that work on sets and costumes and wardrobes. What about those folks? How are they impacted? Should we be concerned about their well-being as well right now? We should. We should be. We should be concerned about, um, you know, especially in you know Los Angeles. This is an industry town. The entire city, the restaurants, the the service workers. You know, this town runs um, on this industry, and so. We know that when when we shut down the industry in this town, you know, it affects everyone. And so we are really, really looking to our left and to our right and, you know, keeping each other afloat and making sure that we have um, 
you know, there's an entertainers, an entertainment fund that supports, you know, struggling writers who are striking um, and, and people in the entertainment industry. That's all people in all of the unions that are affected by this strike. Um, so if, if folks are not in any of these unions and want to support, there are ways to contribute to these funds that will, you know, keep people afloat during this time. Um, and I really encourage um, supporters of our programs and, and, our, and our work to contribute to those things. And yeah, and, and in terms of the emotional toll that this is taking, we are also, you know, we have to actively, and I think Native people are especially good at this, we have to behave as a community and we have to take care of each other in this time. Um, we, we are, we are ready to support each other through this effort. And the, the unions are um, sort of spearheading that, that challenge. Um, so we go into it with bravery and we lift each other up and we recognize that we are enough. We are enough to, um, to combat these really powerful, wealthy idiots who are trying to run our industry <laughs> to the ground. <laughs> okay. Sierra, I, I want to go back to you. And in, in, earlier in the show, you made it really clear that, that you think that some of these forces are aligned against people of color, minorities, such as uh, you folks on the show today that are working in, in Hollywood. And I just want to ask you, Sierra, I mean, for somebody listening today, maybe a young person or maybe, maybe somebody not even young, but has an interest in, in working in the entertainment industry, somebody who wants to be the next Sierra Teller Ornelas or the next Janice Schmeeting or the next Vera Starbard, and they want to, to get a job in Hollywood, what do you tell them now in a situation like this where, where the industry just seems really upside down? I would say don't give up. I would say if you feel like you have in your heart a story to tell, you know, especially as indigenous people, we're the original storytellers, we will find a way to tell our stories. I mean, just hearing from Vera being like, I have a magazine and I have, I'm a playwright and I have, you know, I think like we will find a way to tell our stories. And, and I don't, I have faith in this industry and I have faith in what we're doing. Talking about these other unions, you know, there's a union called IATSE. Um, they're the Teamsters. The Teamsters are folks, they represent a lot of different people, but they're the people who drive the trucks. They're the folks who do the casting. They're the folks who do the heavy lifting in the building. And, you know, they are aligned with our union. They have said, if there's a picket line, we won't cross it. And so due to the organization of the WGA, we've turned some trucks away and we've shut down productions like, like the gentleman before was saying. The studios have already lost more, millions more money from the last three weeks than what our union has been asking for for over the next three years, Right. And so, so I have faith that we're going to win. And I have faith. There are so many writers that came before us that got us health insurance. They got us residuals. They got us payments for things like VHS and DVDs and all these old technologies that back then were new. We're going to win. We're going to do this. And I will say, like, call your uncle who was in Dances with Wolves. Call your sister who's doing background <laughs> on Dark Waves. <laughs> Make sure they're SAG eligible. Have them vote because if SAG... Strikes, it's a done deal. Like Jana says, you can't do this without us. You cannot do this without writers, and you can't do this without actors. Wow. There's the battle cry right there, Sierra. Sierra, I also want to ask you, because I know you're, you're or at least you were developing a show for NBC called Amigos, or maybe you still are. How's the strike impacting that? That show, unfortunately, was um, was not uh, picked up to series. I got passed on. But I did. we did sell a show with... Uh, Bobby Wilson, sweet, sweet Bobby Wilson and Jackie Talia uh, called City Indian. It's a, it's a mockumentary network show 
Um, and we're still waiting. We were still waiting to hear about the the decision to make it or not when when we shut down. So the the dream is the strike ends and we get picked up and we get to make more native comedy on on TV. So that is one of the ways the strike has impacted my life <laughs> currently. All righty, Vera, I want to go back to you here. We're going to have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. But I, earlier we talked about that strike back in 2007. And I think Jana mentioned that uh, reality television got a big push during that time because it didn't require the scripting. And I just want to ask, I mean, do you think it's possible that because of this current strike going forward, we might see a new type of unscripted content emerge as a result of this dispute? And I think that's already there. Like the unscripted has such a force now, but it, I think a lesson, especially in recent years, is the appetite for scripted shows is really there. And I, I do think they learned that lesson. Hopefully, we'll see. They're not dealing, so <laughs> maybe they haven't. But um, those are the shows making the just gigantic splashes, the big money. Um, people want stories. People want crafted stories and. That's been pretty, you know, that's been made loud and clear over and over again. I happen to think as Native people, we're exceptionally good at crafting stories. So that appetite, they're starting to realize that appetite too with uh, success of things like Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls and Molly of Denali. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's much more to farm there, <laughs> like new mm-hmm. with, with unscripted shows. It's, it's such it's such a presence. Um, but they've definitely seen the big splashes by the scripted shows. That's, that's where the money really is. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's been a really, really thought provoking conversation that we've had today here on native America calling. And we have been joined by Sierra Teller Ornalas, Vera Starbard and Janice Schmeeding, And they have done a wonderful job of sharing their perspectives on the writers guild of America strike and its impact on scripted, entertainment. And once again, we had a very enlightening Native perspective on this issue. Anybody who'd like to continue this conversation or dialogue, feel free to check us out on social media. You can do that. In the meantime, join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling when we'll talk to amateur Native athletes who take on what most of us would consider extreme feats of physical endurance. Until then, have a fabulous rest of your day. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. Festival Flamenco Albuquerque brings flamenco artists from around the world, and for nine days, starting June 9th, the Pulse of Flamenco transforms Albuquerque into a cultural epicenter. This year's lineup includes Israel Galvan y Compañía, Daniel Doña Compañía de Danza, Tacha Gonzalez, and Jose Valencia y Salvador Gutierrez. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, 
with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.